Well, as always, it is a great honor and a great privilege to be able to have this opportunity to speak to you from God's Holy Word. But it is also a great uh, responsibility, um, a responsibility of such magnitude that I realize that I cannot discharge this duty rightly apart from the grace of God. And so I ask for your prayers this morning that I would preach as I ought to preach. At the same time, however, everything I just said concerning the preaching of the Word is also true for those who hear the Word. It is a great honor and a great privilege to hear the Word of God preached, but it is also a great responsibility to hear the Word of God rightly. And there's only one way to hear the the Word of God rightly, and that is to respond in repentance and faith. So your hearing of the Word preached should lead to belief and action. Another way to put that is it should lead to love and obedience. That is to be a hearer and doer of the word and not a hearer only. And just as I cannot preach rightly without the grace of God, you cannot hear rightly without the grace of God. And so being aware of our mutual weakness and our mutual need for the grace of God, uh, if we would preach and hear the word of God rightly, let us go to the Lord now and ask his help and his blessings on this most important means of grace. Let's pray. Our Father and our most gracious God, we come to you this morning as a congregation, both preacher and hearer, and we confess that left to ourselves we are weak, we are sinful. Father, we are attempting to open your holy word and to have you speak to us through the activity of preaching and hearing. Lord, unless you bless, we realize that both our preaching and our hearing will be in vain. But Father, we also know that you have chosen the foolishness of preaching to save and to sanctify your people. Lord, would you help me today as I preach? May I preach your word rightly. May what I say be true and according to a right understanding of your word. May it be preached in such a way that is understandable and helpful for your people. May it point them to Christ. May it stir them up to love and to good works. And Father, may your people even now, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, engage themselves fully into worshiping you by listening to your word preached. May you give them discerning ears. May you give them hearts of flesh that are sensitive to what you are teaching us today. And may your people be built up in love towards you and in love towards one another. And all of this to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this time I would invite you to please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The title that I've given to this sermon is Good Works, a Covenant Commitment. When I originally began my preparation for this message, um, my plan was to preach a topical message on the doctrine of good works. And as I studied and prepared, I struggled with how to approach this doctrine. And I remembered some solid advice that I got one time from Pastor Paul Weldon from Tibbet Church. Um, Three years ago, actually, uh, this month, I was um, asked to preach for the first time during a morning worship service. And I was given the topic to preach on, uh, which was, Uh, the topic of the covenant of redemption. 
And I remember I had supper with Paul one, one night that week, and I was saying I'm struggling to, to come up with a sermon about this, this uh, doctrine because it's such a huge doctrine, and I didn't know where to go with it. And he's, so he asked me, well, what text do you see the covenant of redemption in? And I said, well, in my mind, John chapter 6 is the, the text that I see that covenant so clearly um, shown to us in Scripture. And he said, well, just preach that text. And I was like, that's some pretty good advice. So... That's, that's what I've sought to do this time as I prepare for this message. And so, this morning our text is going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And as we progress through this sermon, we're, we're going to hone in on verse number 24. But let us begin by reading verses 19 through 25. This is God's Word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir, one, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thus the reading of God's word, and may his people say, Amen. Amen. Well, as we have just read this passage, I want you to now turn your focus to verse number 23. Here we have a call from God through the writer of Hebrews to do what? To hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now what does this exhortation mean? He says we are to hold fast. Now where else do we see that phrase hold fast in scripture? Well one place we see that phrase is all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. And there, the ESV translate that, translates that verse the following way. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we see that the phrase hold fast has the connotation of clinging on to or tenaciously holding on to something no matter what obstacles get in the way or no matter what forces try to separate you from that which you are holding on to. And so in Genesis we see a call, we see that the call is for a man to hold fast to his wife. In Hebrews we see that the call is for a man to hold fast to the confession of our hope. In other words, it is saying that we should hold fast, tenaciously cling on to the only hope of our salvation, which is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the only Savior, and thus our only hope. In other words, we are to hold fast to Jesus. Now there's another way in which these two verses are similar. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that this holding fast is a covenant commitment that is being spoken of. Marriage is a covenant. And thus the call for the man to hold fast to his wife is, is, is a call for the man to make a covenant commitment to his wife all the days of his life. Well, in Hebrews 10, 23, we, see, we also see a covenant commitment. Here, it is the believer's covenant commitment to the Lord by faith. 
Now, what covenant is the believer in with God? Well, it's the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, what condition is given to man? The condition of faith. And so in order for a man to enter into the blessings of the covenant of grace, he must enter by faith. This is what we have in verse 23. The believer's covenant commitment to hold fast to his profession of faith without wavering. Furthermore, this, this phrase, hold fast, the confession of our hope without wavering, could be rendered like this. Let us possess our, our profession of faith continually. The idea is that we are called not only to possess faith, but to continually possess this faith no matter what. Brothers and sisters, this is no easy task that we are being called to. It is a tall order. In fact, I would argue that this is an impossible task if it were just left up to our ability. You see, this task is nothing less than the call to perseverance. Now, who in here would raise their hand and say, well, I've got that. I'm strong enough. I can, I can hold fast. I can persevere to the end. I will never deny you, Lord. Sounds familiar, right? Remember Peter? When he confidently said, even if I must die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. And yet, on that very night, he denied his Lord three times. So it is a tall task, this, this task to persevere to the end. But, brothers and sisters, take heart. Notice the passage that this commandment comes in. We see that this, this call to perseverance in the faith is not a standalone commandment. But rather, it comes in the context of three great faith preservers. So we are to persevere, but that commandment comes in the context of three great faith preservers. Notice the end of verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why or how? For he who promised is faithful. And so the first great faith preserver that surrounds and undergirds this command to persevere in the faith is that God is faithful. We are able to hold fast unto Christ because we have confidence that He will hold fast to us. The one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6 And so our confidence that we will hold fast is not in our own spiritual, in our own spiritual strength, but in the gracious covenant faithfulness of God. Secondly, we have access into the very presence of this God and a glorious encouragement to draw near. Draw near to what? Look at verse 19. Draw near to the holy places and to the great high priest as it says in verses 19 through 21. Brothers and sisters, this is astounding to think about that we who are sinful creatures are actually able and encouraged to draw near to the very holy presence of God because of what Christ has done. Notice verse 19 again. On what basis are we able to enter in the into the presence of God? On the very basis of the mediatorial work of Christ. It says it is by His blood that we are able to enter. And then in verse 20, it is through His flesh. What does that remind you of? The Lord's Supper that we will partake in today it is by His blood and through His flesh. In other words, it is 
It is by the virtue of our union with Christ, by faith, that we have access to draw near into the very presence of God. And it is by virtue of our union with Christ that we receive the very blessings that come from the work of Christ. And it is those blessings that make us able to enter this presence without fear of judgment. Look at verse 22. It's by virtue of our union with Christ by faith that we have hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. What does that mean? In short, it means that the saving work of Christ on our behalf is that we who have faith in Christ have been forgiven of our sins and we have been purified. That is, we have been granted the very righteousness of Christ. You see, we have two great problems that keep us out of the very presence of God, out of the holy places. On the one hand, we were sinful. And on the other hand, we had no positive righteousness rendering us worthy to be in God's presence. But what Christ did in His perfect life and in His, and in his substitutionary death addresses both of those issues. Our sin problem and the fact that we have no positive righteousness of our own. And so He makes atonement for our sins on the one hand by His death, thus addressing our sin issue. And His perfectly obedient life is credited to our account through faith, thus granting us the very perfect righteousness that is required for all who would approach into the holy places, that is, into the very presence of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. And so the first great faith preserver that we see is the covenant faithfulness of God based upon the very character of God And the second, as we have seen, is the gospel truth itself, that we have been reconciled to God by the very blood of Christ that was shed for us. So these are two great faith preservers, that God is faithful and the gospel, right? But there is more. There is more encouragement to help us as we seek to hold fast. Thirdly, we have one another to help us as we seek to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Notice the corporate nature of verses 24 and 25. It says that we are to consider. Who are we to consider? One another. And then verse 25, we read that we should not neglect to meet together, corporate. And again in verse 25, it says we are to encourage. Encourage who? One another. It has been said, and I believe rightly so, that the call to perseverance, to the perseverance is a community project. The perseverance of the saints is a community project. And it's this concept in particular that I want to, to elaborate further on as we progress through this message. And so what I just did was I highlighted a particular verse, verse 23, and then sought to show you how the exhortation of that verse comes within a greater context. Now let us look a bit more specifically at that greater context. So the, the, the passage we have before us is verses 19 through 25. And I believe that this passage, verses 19 through 25, shows us the very nature of Christianity and 
the very nature of the church. Let me explain. First, let us see how this passage shows us the very nature of Christianity. So in seeking to understand the nature of Christianity, we must first ask the question, what makes a person a Christian? If you're going to understand what Christianity is, you need to know what makes a person a Christian. Well, what makes a person a Christian is not the same as what makes a person a member of any other religion. You see, you could be a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist by simply saying that you want to be a member of one of those religions and then following their system of beliefs and practices to one degree or another. So you see that with all of those religions, it's simply an outward commitment that can be entered into entirely by the flesh. But that is not so with Christianity. A Christian is not a person who simply commits to following Christian beliefs and practices. A Christian is a person that is, has actually experienced change. Supernatural change. Now I don't have time this morning to go into all the details of that, but let us quickly speak of three great objective changes that takes place in a person who is a Christian. First, a Christian is a person whose legal status with God has actually changed. That is, they have been justified, which means they are no longer guilty in the court of God. Their sins have been forgiven, and they have been credited with the very righteousness of Christ. That is a factual reality for the Christian. This does not happen in any other religion because all other religions are shams. To be a Christian is to actually be justified by the one true God. Secondly, a Christian is a person whose actual nature has been changed. When a sinner is born again, a new principle is placed within that person. In other words, a new heart is given to them. Because of this, a Christian actually has the ability now to will and to do that which is pleasing to God. They have become, as Paul says, a new creation. And therefore, the dominion of sin has been broken in their lives. Sin no longer has dominion over you if you are a Christian. That is an objective reality. You are a new creation if you are a Christian. If you are not a new creation, you are not a Christian. So it is an objective reality. It is a real change that takes place. That is not true in any other religion. There is no real change that takes place when someone becomes a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. Third, a Christian is a person whose relational status with God has been changed. A Christian is someone who goes from being a child of Satan to being a child of God. A Christian has been adopted by God and thus can now cry out, Abba, Father. That is an objective reality. And it is this reality that I want to elaborate a little on now because I think it is so critical to our understanding of our passage today. Now I want to mention two other passages quickly that highlight this reality of a Christian's relationship with God. That first passage is John chapter 17, verse number 3. And that verse states the following, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so what is this verse teaching us? 
was teaching us at least two critical truths. First, those who have eternal life are those that know the only true God. And of course the word know here is much more than simply a head knowledge or simply knowing about the one true God. The word know here is a relational word. It means that those who have a personal and loving relationship with God, those are the ones who have eternal life. Secondly, this verse also teaches us that the very, the very nature of this eternal life is to have this relationship with the one true God. So it is not, well, if you know the one true God, you can then experience eternal life. It is saying that what comprises spiritual or eternal life, the Christian life, is union and communion with God, with the one true God. The second passage is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Here Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, so what does this passage teach us? It teaches that what makes a person a disciple of Christ is not that they address Jesus as Lord or even that they do many mighty works in His name, but rather that they are known by Jesus. Of course, what is meant by the word known in this passage is not simply head knowledge or knowledge of facts. Jesus knew who these people were. He knew what their works were. The word new here is referring to the fact that these people never had a personal covenant relationship with Christ. And so we see from these two passages that what a Christian is described as is a person who knows, that is, has a personal covenant relationship with God. Whereas a lost person is described as someone who does not know, that is, does not have a personal covenant relationship with God. So I say all this to say this. Our passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, shows us that the nature of true Christianity is that a Christian is one who has fellowship with God. A Christian is one who has been reconciled to God and thus can enter into the holy places and draw near unto his God. That's verses 19 through 21. That what makes a person a Christian is that they now have fellowship with God. They have been reconciled to God. So that's one critical truth about the very nature of Christianity that this passage teaches. But there's a second great reality that we see in our passage about, about the nature of Christianity. And that is that a Christian is one who has fellowship with other Christians. When a person becomes a Christian, they are adopted into the family of God. This means that not only is God our Father, but that all of God's people are now our people. You see that? All of God's people are our people. We are in the very family of God. You see, when a person is saved, that is visible evidence that they are members of the universal church. And that's not a point up for debate. If you are truly a Christian, you are a member of the church universal. And because when a Christian is saved... There is outward and visible evidence of this by virtue of the changes that we have already talking, uh, spoken about. This means that a Christian is therefore bound 
to join themselves unto a local assembly of believers if they have opportunity to do so. Okay? So if you become a Christian, you are a member of the universal church. When you become a Christian, there's outward visible evidence that you are a Christian, right? Okay? If that be the case, then you are bound to join yourself to the visible expression of the universal church, which is the local church. You see that? So in this passage, verses 19 through 23, we see that that a Christian is one who is in covenant fellowship with God and also that a Christian is one who has covenant fellowship with other Christians. That's Christianity 101, brothers and sisters. That what it means to be a Christian is that you have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with His people. Okay? Secondly, this passage shows us the nature of the church. What is the very nature of the church? If you had to boil down the church into two words, what two words would you choose? What is the church built upon? What is the church? Well, the first word would be the word gospel. The church is built upon the reality of who Christ is and what He has done. Christ is the cornerstone and the apostolic teaching is the foundation. Notice verse 19 once again. It says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That is the foundation of the church right there. The gospel message of who Christ is and what He did. Why are we gathered here today? Have you thought to ask that question of yourselves? Why are we here today? Why? Because of our mutual confession that Jesus is the Christ, that He has reconciled us, reconciled us to God by His perfect life and sacrificial death. We are a people who are gathered under the gospel. See that? That's why we're gathered together, because of the gospel. But the second word that describes the nature of the church is community. Notice our passage. And I want you to notice the communal language in this passage. Verse 19, we see the word brothers. What context is that in? The context of the covenant fellowship of the believers. Brothers. We see the word, the the plural pronoun we verse 20 it is for us verse 24 and since we verse 22 let us draw near verse 23 let us hold fast verse 24 let us consider one another verse 25 meet together and encourage one another and so i hope you have seen how the major thrust of this passage is that we have covenant fellowship with God by virtue of our union with Christ, and likewise we have covenant fellowship with one another, the church, also by virtue of our union with Christ by faith. Thus, we as the covenant people of God gather together under our mutual confession and interest in the gospel and under the reality that we are united to one another by God. Now, Brothers, that is, that is amazing to think about. That there is no Christianity apart from fellowship with God and fellowship with His people. And there is no church without the gospel and community. Now let us turn our attention to verse number 24. Verse 24 reads, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, this time I want to just walk through this verse 
word by word to understand better what is being taught here in verse 20, number 24. The first phrase we see is what? And let us. Again, the context is clear. The us is referring to the believers who have covenanted together to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it has direct reference to the Hebrew believers, probably located at that time somewhere in Italy, but by extension it is applicable to all local churches that read this letter, including us today. So it is referring to the local church. Now it's very important that we get this. You cannot read this verse and make application to your life unless you are part of the local church. It's impossible to do so. Unless you are part of the church, you cannot even read this verse and make application to your life. Secondly, as we walk through this verse, notice the word consider. Now this word consider is a very strong word in the Greek. It literally means to consider attentively or to fix one's eyes or mind upon its object. Now this same word is used earlier in Hebrews back in chapter 3, verse 1. Notice that verse, chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews. Now the word consider is used in that verse. There it says to consider what? Or to fix one's mind on what? Jesus. To consider Jesus. Okay, so in verse chapter 3, verse 1, we are called to consider Jesus. What are we called to consider in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Well, we're going to get into a little bit of a translation issue here. The ESV reads, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. As I studied the translation of this verse, I believe that there is a better way to translate verse 24. You see, the ESV's translation makes the object of this consideration on what? On how to stir up one another to love and good works. Whereas some of the older translations like the KJV translate this verse in the following way. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And I think that translation fits this context better. And so the object of the consideration is actually your fellow Christians within the context of the local church. Brothers and sisters, we are being called to consider one another, to consider one another attentively, to fix our minds on one another. That is what is expected between brothers and sisters in the church. There are to be two great objects that captivate our minds according to Hebrews. We should consider Jesus and we should consider one another. Brian Borgman puts it this way, and I think I have this quote on your handout. And I think he does a good job of summarizing the teaching of this verse. He says, in our excessively individualistic culture, we might like to change the pronouns of the first two exhortations to me. Let me draw near. Let me hold fast. But the fact is we cannot escape the application that the writer of Hebrews draws out from the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And that application is radically community oriented. He goes on to say, I would su suggest to you that the book of Hebrews emphasizes that the Christian life cannot be lived in isolation or separation. In fact, a so-called Christian life lived in isolation or separation 
is not a Christian life at all. Christian life is to be lived under the gospel in community with one another. In other words, to consider Jesus is to consider one another. End quote. And I give a hearty amen to that quote. Okay, so we have seen that we are to consider one another, but we are to consider one another with a purpose in mind. Now what is that purpose? Well, that purpose is to stir up one another to love and good works. So the phrase stir up, what does this phrase mean? Well, actually the Greek word that is translated is the word paroxumos, which is where we get that often used English word paroxysm from. I don't think you use that word very often. Have you had a paroxysm this week? You don't know, do you? (laughs) Well, the word paroxysm in English means an outburst of motivation or action. This word is actually found in the New Testament in only one other place. It's found in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, where it says that there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. So in Hebrews, it is translated as stir up, and in Acts, it is translated as a sharp disagreement. So what does that Greek word mean? Well, the the word means to incite a change in motivation and action. And so once again, the word here is a strong word. It is an aggressive word. We are exhorted here to stir up, to incite, to provoke one another to change in our motivation and in our actions. We are to so love one another that we should make it our aim to stir one another up to change our motivation and our actions. Well, we see this change in motivation and action as we proceed proceed through the verse. What is the motivation that we are seeking to stir up in one another? The motivation is love. We are to stir one another up in such a way that our hearts increase or change in love. You see that? And this motivation of love is to go past just a good intention. It is to result in actual good works. This holy motivation is to lead to holy action. And so now we finally get to the point in the sermon where we will address the doctrine of good works. But I thought it necessary to show you the context of this passage before we look specifically at this doctrine. So, what are good works? Before we define good works, I think it is important to just quickly mention the necessity of good works. As we will see a little later when we look at our confession, good works are not optional. Good works are the fruit of a true saving faith. Jesus says that the tree that does not bear good fruit is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. James says that faith without works is dead. Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. And so just as the Bible knows nothing of a churchless Christianity, the Bible knows nothing of a Christianity devoid of good works. If you are a Christian, you will be engaged in good works. And thus, it follows then that if you are not engaged in good works, you are not a Christian. See that? So if you are a Christian, you will be engaged in good works. Well, this time I would um, ask if you would take a copy of the Trinity Hymnal. 
as we seek to define this doctrine of good works. And notice page 678 in the back of the Trinity hymnal. And you'll find chapter number 16 titled, Of Good Works. And I want you to notice paragraph 1. Here it gives a very brief but needed definition of good works. It says that good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, and not such as without warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. In other words, for something to be a good work, it must be that which God has commanded to be done in His word. Or in other words, a good work is a work that is in agreement with the revealed will of God for our lives. Okay, So for it to be a good work, it must be according to the Word of God, right? The Pharisees were... Let me back up. But is that all that is required for a good work? So it must be done according to the Word of God. It must be um, something that God commands us to do, right? For it to be a good work. But is that all that is required for something to be a good work? Well, in one sense, yes. But in another sense, we need to make sure that we recognize that there is a difference in outwardly keeping the commandment of God and truly keeping the commandment of God. The Pharisees, for example, they were known for their meticulous keeping of the law, and yet their hearts were exceedingly wicked. Their fruit was bad. Their works were not good works. And so what must be present for our keeping of God's commandments to be a good work? Notice one chapter over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Here it says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Paul in Romans 14.23 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we see here that in order for any good work to be done, it must be done in faith. It must proceed from a heart of faith that believes in God and further believes the promises of God. So if you do anything that's not done according to that faith, it is not a good work, even if it is in outward conformity to the Word of God. But there is still more that must be present for a work to be considered a good work. We've already saw it in our text. What is the motivation that must precede the action of good works? The motivation is love. I think 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3 says it best. There it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so we have seen that for a good work to be truly a good work, it has three necessary components. First, it must be according to the revealed will of God. Second, it must proceed from a heart of faith. And third, it must be motivated by a heart of love towards God and towards one another. Now I want to make a 
statement here about what good works do not accomplish. So we've defined what good works are, but now I want to tell you what good works do not accomplish. So look back again on page 678. And notice paragraph 5. Now this is something that should be one of those things that goes without saying, but I will take the time to say it anyway. Notice the first line of paragraph 5. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. See that? So our good works are not the basis of our salvation, but rather they are the result of our salvation. Notice paragraph 2 in the Confession. It says here that these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And so the order is clear. Salvation and then good works. We are created anew in Christ for good works that we should walk in them. So it does not accomplish our salvation. It is the result of the saving work of God in our lives. And now let us look at what good works do accomplish. Okay, so we've defined it. We've looked at what it does not accomplish. Now let's look at what it does accomplish. Another way to state that is, why stir one another up into good works? What benefit does there comes from doing good works? Well, again, notice our confession. It is very helpful in answering this question. Notice paragraph 2 once again. We see here six benefits that do result from the practicing of good works. Now, I have scriptures for each of these, but for time's sake this morning, I will not go to each of those scriptures, but simply list out these benefits in hopes that it will stir you up to love and good works. First, practicing good works manifests our thankfulness. The practice of good works is a way that we prove that we truly are thankful for the saving grace of God. The one who has been forgiven much loves much, and this love results in being rich in doing good works. Secondly, it strengthens our assurance. Brother Ryan last week preached on the doctrine of assurance and how it is both a duty to attain and maintain as well as, as how it is a great delight and joy to the soul. Brothers and sisters, would you have assurance of your faith? Would you be strengthened in your assurance? Then be faithful to do good unto one another. Thirdly, it edifies the brethren. Now this ought to be a great motivation for you to do good works. When you love to do good unto one another, it builds up your brothers and sisters in the faith. In simple terms, your doing good unto one another is helpful. Do you love one another? Then do good unto one another. Fourth, it adorns the profession of the gospel. Now this one ought to be a great motivation to us. You see, brothers and sisters, our doing good unto one another is not just helpful within the context of the local church, but it is also a great means of evangelism. Jesus said that the world will know you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. Well, can the world see your love for one another apart from you doing good works? No. The love can't see your affection. It's invisible. The world can only see what? You're doing good unto one another. That's how you manifest your love, which does what? Manifest that you truly are a disciple of Christ. Okay? So doing good works unto one another in the context of the church adorns the gospel. 
commit yourself to outdo one another in showing love for the sake of the gospel. Fifthly, it stops the mouths of the adversaries. Now this motivation is closely associated with the previous one. The enemies of Christ are constantly looking for ammunition to cast aspersions on Christ and His church. The evil one, Satan, is an accuser of the brethren. And, and the disciples of Satan, the children of Satan, likewise are committed to finding fault within the church. When you do good works, you stop the mouths of the adversaries. Notice with me, if you would, turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read two verses here that illustrate this truth. That good works stop the mouth of the adversaries. Notice verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. There it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so our doing good stops the mouths of our adversaries, stops the mouths of the enemies of Christ. And then lastly, our good works do what? They glorify God. Our good works bring glory to God. Is there, is there really any other motivation that's needed? That when you do good works, it brings glory to your God. You see that? Do you desire for God to receive glory? Then do good works. Now let's turn to a couple of points of application. The first point of application that I would make for us is this. That we have a duty to stir one another up unto love and good works. And that this duty is a reciprocal duty. So first, we have the duty to consider one another, one another so as to stir them up to love and good works. And so when you were preparing this morning to come to worship, did you have in your mind your duty to stir one another up into love and good works? That's something we need to ask ourselves. Did we have that in our minds? Were we considering one another as we prepared ourselves to gather together today? Secondly, this duty is reciprocal. Not only do you have a duty to stir up others, but you also must be stirred up. And so I asked a question in the opposite direction. When you prepared to come to worship this morning, did you have in your mind your duty to be stirred up to love and good works? Do you surround yourself with brothers and sisters that cause your heart to long to serve Christ and His church better? Are those the people that you are surrounding yourself with? Are you seeking to be stirred up by your brothers and sisters in Christ? It is our duty to do so. Next point of application. We have established that we ought to be engaging in good works and we ought to be stirring one another up to good works. But you might be thinking, well, I see that we need to do this. I see that it's my duty that I ought to do this. But how? How can we do this? Well, the first way is very simple and yet profound. Would you see Emmanuel Baptist Church built up in love towards one another and see the people here abounding in good works to the glory of God? We'll start very simply by doing a good work towards someone else in the congregation. Simple, right? But profound. If you want to see this, the, our congregation stirred up to love and good works, do good works to one another. 
Your example is very influential. Paul told his followers to do what? To follow his example. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Second way. Notice verse 25 of our passage. Hebrews 10.25. The writer to the Hebrews shows us once again a very simple yet profound way in which we can stir up one another unto love and good works. He says, Do not neglect to meet together. If you would see this church stirred up in love and good works, come to church. It's very simple, but that's what that means. Gather together with your people. Gather together with the people of God. Your presence when the body of Christ meets is more valuable than you realize. We understand providential hindrances that happens, but brothers and sisters, consider one another. Come to church. Third way, notice again verse 25. It says to encourage one another. It says that we are to to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. So we stir one another up by our example and by our very presence, but we also encourage one another by word. Remember that word stir up is an aggressive word. It's an active word. It's not a passive word. So you're not just going to be able to stir up others by your example. That's not what the word means. It's paroxumos. It's an aggressive word. You are to to shake people into doing love and good works. That requires the use of your mouth. We are to encourage one another. But how can we encourage one another? Think, Think of the passage that we have. It gives us all that we need to encourage one another. First, the gospel. We can enter into the holy places by the blood of Christ. Remind one another of the blessedness of the gospel. Remind people just how blessed they are if they are savingly united to Christ. Bond with one another under your mutual participation in the gospel. We ought to be talking to one another about the gospel, about the glories of the gospel. That will stir one another up into love and good works, and it will cause you to bond together. You see that? Secondly, it says to draw near in verse 22. Encourage one another to draw near. How can you do that? Pray with one another. Actually pray with one another. And do so often. Third, verse 23, encourage one another to continue to hold fast to the confession of their faith, reminding them that God is faithful and that He will complete the good work that He has started in them. Press people to persevere in the faith. We need that. I need that. You need that. So we need to be reminding one another, persevere in the faith, hold fast, and all the more as you see that day drawing near. Fourthly, consider one another. Remind one another to consider one another. Remind one another of the covenant promises that they made when they became a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And this leads me finally to the last point that I want to consider with you. We have seen that authentic Christianity is comprised of being in covenant fellowship with God and in covenant fellowship with one another in the church. We have seen that we can describe the nature of the church in two words, gospel and community. We have been saved by Christ and brought into fellowship with God and by the very virtue 
of that, we have also been brought into fellowship with others who have likewise been brought into the fellowship with God. We have seen that, seen that because we are in covenant fellowship with one another, we are to love and to do good works unto one another and stir one another up to the same, as well as to stir one another up to draw near to God and to hold fast to the confession of our hope. So we've seen all of that from our passage today. Well, all of this leads me to one of the most important documents that our church has, and that is the covenant of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I've attached a copy of that to your notes, if you would notice that. And notice with me the first line of the covenant. And notice how this line teaches exactly what Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25 teaches. It teaches by the virtue of the gospel, we have been called together, that is, in covenant fellowship together as Christians, and we have been called into what? Into His fellowship, that is, covenant fellowship with God. Read the line, believing by God's divine grace, we have been brought to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, called together, covenant fellowship together, into His fellowship. Covenant fellowship with God. That's Christianity right there, 101. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be in covenant fellowship with one another and to be in covenant fellowship with God. Now what follows next is a list of promises that we make towards one another. Brothers and sisters, if you, as you look through those promises, this is the love and good works of Hebrews 10.24 in action. If you would know what it means to, to obey Hebrews 10.24... Read our covenant. If you would obey Hebrews 10.24, keep your covenant promises. So if you want to know what it looks like to live as a Christian in this world, that's what it looks like right there. Keeping our covenant promises to one another and to God. And if you would like to see our church do the following things, keep these promises. If you would like to see our church manifest our thankfulness, strengthen our assurance, edify the brethren, adorn the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, then keep your covenant promises. But remember, you are not alone in this. Remember verse 23, our God is faithful. You have a faithful covenant God that will help you. And we have one another to help us to keep these covenant promises and so glorify our God. With that said, let us now draw near together to the throne of grace. Our Father and our most gracious God, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you have brought us into your fellowship. That by the very blood of Christ, we have been, a been enabled to draw near into the holy places. Father, it is such a such a blessing, such, such glory in thinking of the fact that we are Christians. We are children of God. Father, help us to realize that and be thankful for it. But Father, you have also brought us into covenant fellowship with one another. You have assembled us together into Emmanuel Baptist Church. Lord, we do thank you for this. But Father, we also realize that we are weak that we are sinful, that we are prideful and selfish, 
that we would, left to ourselves, consider ourselves before we consider others. So, Father, we do pray that you would give us grace, that we would consider one another and stir one another up into love and good works. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. For this time, if you would, please stand, and we will sing together hymn number 391, Come, you sinners, poor and needy.